Helen Atwan has been director at Beacon Press since 1995. She previously held positions at Random House, Knopf, Viking, FSG, and Pocket Books. She oversees all aspects of the publishing house, including production, design, business, and editorial, as well as acting as an editor for a select number of titles. She acquires in narrative nonfiction, memoir, and general nonfiction with a special interest in public health and legal issues. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, I was raised Unitarian. Huh? Well, I mean, we went there periodically, mm-hmm. sporadically, mm-hmm. when I was younger. And I always remember that there was a, a chart of religions on the wall, and uh, it highlighted key messages from each religion. and their similarities, and I just wonder how this might inform, if at all, what you do at the press. Well, all of the principles and purposes of the religious movement now known as Unitarian Universalism, since the Unitarians and the Universalists merged in 1961, so all of those principles and purposes inform what we do. But we interpret our work in a secular way to represent the social justice agenda of the movement. So we do publish books about religion, but we don't publish books for the denomination. There is actually a small publishing house called Skinner House Press, which publishes books by, for, and about Unitarian Universalist. Our mission as part of the Unitarian Universalist Association is to publish books that affirm and promote the social justice agenda of the religious movement. Does that change over time? Yes, it changes all the time. It evolves all the time. And um, one of the things that I was told when I was being interviewed for the job is that Beacon should be a prophetic voice for the religious movement. And at the time that I arrived in 1995, 1996, we were publishing a book called Transgender Warriors. And that Mm. was a very early advocacy book for the transgender community. And we published one of the very first books about gay marriage, and we published a lot of early books about the climate crisis to come. And of course, famously, our history, our roots are in Unitarian ministers' tracts about suffrage and abolition. You know, we date our actual Um, beginnings at 1854, but as our brief history points out, the first book was actually published in 1824, but before there was a very organized decision to, to publish books as a publishing house. And it was then called, in 1854, it was called the American Unitarian Association Press. Okay. Or books. 
Right. It wasn't until 1904, as I recall, it might have been 1902, that the, the name Beacon Press, which had been used on some of the books, became the actual name of the press. So you're a nonprofit. Yes. Again, what's the relationship between you and, and the church? Do they update you on what their social justice missions are? How do you communicate? Well, there's a very synergistic um, relationship. And again, as the head of the UUA, as we call it, it we don't call it a church because it is an organization of yeah. many different independent congregations scattered throughout the country. Right. So um, the the association, um, ele they elect a leader every six years now, and the leader then, the president of the UUA, told me that Beacon should be a prophetic voice. So we were not supposed to follow mm -hmm. what the congregations and the congregation leadership were doing, we were supposed to lead. We wow. were supposed to be publishing books that represented new ideas that would be of importance to the association. We were publishing books about immigrants, for example, <laughs> long before the association became really interested in immigrant justice. I think we were a voice leading the association to think about what happens to immigrants in the U.S. in the late 20th and early 21st century. We, of course, have always published books about women. We have been, for example, of late publishing many books by and about black women, many books about intersectional issues. Well, now, this is just to what, give, give them a voice? Or to well, alert the rest of society to... Well, both. The I hardships mean, that uh, they've dealt with and... Well, it's to lift up the voices of the people who are not otherwise heard and who are forgotten or marginalized in our society. And it's, it's to raise the issue and enter the discussion about what happens to these people who have been marginalized for a long time. So, is there a brain trust that sort of... <laughs> takes the temperature of uh, society and then tries to predict what's going to be problematic? How does that work? Well, that, that brain trust is called our editorial department. And okay. um, we have a very active editorial department that is constantly scanning the culture for issues of importance. We are one of the few publishing houses left in America that actively looks for books and authors as opposed to having waiting for lunch with the agent that will tell you what books and authors are on offer. So, so you'll actually go out and identify people and who are doing important research, for example? Yes, or, research and, and, or activism. Yes, we definitely right. will. And mm. we will reach out to them and try to meet with them and talk to them about their work and talk to them about whether you know, they can imagine doing a book, mm -hmm. and, um, and very often they can and do. Cornell West, The Story mm -hmm. of Race Matters, is a very good one. Um, it was definitely an editor here at Beacon, just before, two years before I arrived, who 
had heard Cornell, I'm looking up at the book yeah, now, yeah, yeah. who had heard Cornell speak at Harvard yeah. and who made an appointment, went to see him and said, we, we really need to collect some of your pieces and some of your lectures into a book that really kind of defines your thinking about race in America in the 1990s. And that became Race Matters. Hmm. And um, I remember at that time, I did not work at Beacon. I worked at Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. Right. But Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux distributed Beacon books. And so I heard the first time this book was presented at a sales conference, and we were all looking at each other saying, and who is Cornell West? I see you've got Paul Robeson up there, yes. too. Here I stand. Now, yes. when was that published? That was in the First. 50s. Um, okay. I'm going to take a minute and go look. Because he was big in the 30s. Yes, but this was, I think this was later. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it's a bit later. Yeah. If it's the first edition. It was first published in 1958. Yeah, he was a fascinating character. Yes, of course. But that that is part of the legacy of the prophetic voice of Beacon in finding activists who really took a stand yeah. in the community and and really giving them a forum to speak. And more and more, that's not just in the book, but now it's all over the media and social media. So when we publish a book, we publish the printed book, we publish the audio book, we publish the e-book, but we also promote the book, not just to sell copies, but to promote the ideas in the book, which is a real hallmark of what Beacon does uniquely. So really, it's sort of, if not birthing <laughs> ideas, uh, then... Uh, facilitating their distribution and adoption. Exactly. Hmm. So what specifically is your role as a publisher of a nonprofit? How does it differ from tra uh, commercial trade? Well, I mean, we've the touched bottom, a bit on it. Yeah, yeah. I would say the bottom line at Beacon is not the bottom line. It's right. about ideas. It's about lifting up voices. It's about having an impact in the culture mm. and in fact changing things right one hopes yeah one hopes or at least being part of a movement for change so each year we issue a social impact report which literally measures how many times our authors have spoken in public spaces or on the media radio television podcast there's so many ways now to reach the public, and we're measuring that as a way of saying these are how we're advancing progressive ideas into the culture. What about measuring legislation? Well, we're proud to have had some of our books read from the floor of Congress, but um, and but, but we actual always, change, you know, in laws. We don't lobby Congress, no. of course. Um, but we do hope that the books that we publish, which we, of course, send to legislators, will have an impact and will inform. In fact, um, we have a, a book I'm working on right now, we hope will inform the platforms of some of the candidates for president. Mm, yeah. 
So it's an important time, isn't it? Yes, and yeah. it's an important time to make sure that the candidates themselves, and more importantly, probably their staff, their policy staff, are aware of some of the more progressive ideas hmm. that our authors are trying to introduce into hmm. the the platforms of candidates, both for the White House and for the legislatures. So your sort of free distribution or distribution of free copies or review copies, they wouldn't just go to the media, then they go to politicians and whoever might be an influencer yes. in that particular field? Right, definitely. I mean, you know, not all of our books are are going to political candidates or no. their staff, but some are, and some are going to policymakers in other fields, certainly in the climate area. We've published books about all manner of important issues in the culture and, um, and tried to reach, yes, not only policymakers, but just influencers, yes, for okay. sure. Okay, so tell me what's... Uh, what society is going to do in 20 years then? <laughs> I hope it will be a better, kinder, <laughs> gentler nation. <laughs> That's the hope, yeah. That's yes. where we're uh, active in politics, I right. think. But is there, I mean, of course, you've mentioned a whole variety of different subject matters that you've, you've dealt with and mm -hmm. tackled. Is there anything that's coming up that's, that isn't really on the radar yet, but you think will be on the radar? I think the new issues are really very much intersectional issues that we're really starting to discover, for example, how indigenous communities are impacted by climate change. And so the two cannot be separated. That's an example. Um, I mentioned indigenous meaning the native population, yes. Aboriginal, but yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're publishing books that look at the impact of people with disabilities who are also facing racism. We're looking at um, the intersectional issues that complicate and frustrate progress in many different ways. And in some senses, it's a very hopeful time. We saw the surprise election of AOC, who's become quite a yeah. mover and shaker. Have you given her a form? A form? Are you going to do a book by her? We're not able to do a book by her. As I understand it, she's quite busy. Sure. But we are doing a book by journalists who work very closely with her during the campaign and after um, about her and about, the. we're calling it the AOC generation because it really is about a whole a whole group of people who are working in this vein to lift up these new ideas mm -hmm. and to to try to really remake what we think of as a political system in a way that represents a much larger group of the actual citizens or residents mm -hmm. of this country. One thing that comes to mind uh, for me is, is reparations for slavery. Mm -hmm. and uh, and for uh, uh, mistreatment of people. Are you doing anything on that? Well, we did long time, many, many years ago, 20 years ago, we did one of the early books as an argument for reparations. Okay. 
for slavery specifically. Um, And of course, quite a few people have been publishing on that issue since then, Mm -hmm. and many of our books have addressed that issue. Mm -hmm. But we're also recognizing how complex and intersectional that issue is. You know, we're definitely very aware of what's happened to indigenous people in this country mm-hmm. and constantly trying to work with activists and writers to um, to lift up those issues. Just get back to your role in the introduction, there's mention of production. So what's your role as it pertains to production? Well, it's, this press is fairly small. We have, currently have 31 staff members here. Mm-hmm. So I oversee all of it. Um, I'm now... <laughs> How does that feel? <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> overwhelming. Okay. But um, I do now have, I'm delighted to say, an associate director okay. who is our longtime editor and editorial director, Gayatri Patnayak. And Gayatri is helping me with that load. Um, but certainly, ultimately... I need to be aware of everything that's going on because although we are a nonprofit, we we do need to be able to support ourselves. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to lose money. And we haven't lost money for 18 years. We have been in the black and, and mm-hmm. in recent years we've been doing really well and we've been able to reinvest all of the surpluses in the publishing program, which allows us to publish books that otherwise we know would not only not be profitable, would, but very likely would, would be, as individual books, money losers, but, yeah. but are really important to have out in the culture. That's typically how a publishing house operates mm-hmm. too, isn't it? With the money from the bestsellers, they They'll, they'll use some of that for books that they really think are very important but might not sell as well. Yes, although I would say with the big five, that's happening... Less and less. Less and less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more and more of the profits are being turned over, yeah. not back into the publishing program no. at all. I recently had lunch with someone who works for a major New York house who said, I can't even propose a book unless we know it's going to sell between at least 10,000, and I've heard other people say at least 50. Yeah, I've heard the same, yeah. 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 So that sets the bar very high and yeah. makes it very difficult to publish those more modest books. Yeah. Well, the, the more important books, it's another way of putting it, I guess. Well. Or the less accessible books, or books that may not have a, a broad appeal. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. But you didn't ask my question about production. Oh, yes, specifically. Well, yes. So um, I'm very in tune with what's happening. There's been um, a lot of turmoil in book production recently because there's been a lot of condensation of the printing industry. printing industry has been hit very hard in recent years. Why is that? um, Because of the cost of raw materials and because of possibly tariffs or or threatened tariffs and um and it's become on, on what paper for example yes. coming in 
Yes, or goods that will be made into paper. This is all in the zeitgeist. How much of it is real is very hard to they're, tell. They're, they're but, using that as but a, the consolidation a to put the prices up. Is that well, it? Well, they're consolidating and looking at what is most profitable. And right now, printing boxes is much more profitable than printing books. And Amazon is going through so many damn boxes. It's, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you get a tiny little product in a teeny little plastic bag, and they send it out in a, in a box that's ten times the size. Because probably that gives, they get the cheapest rate by doing that or something. Who knows? But what a waste. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's an issue, and it's an issue for printers who can see, you know, more comfortable margins and better profits if they print other materials rather uh, than books. So uh, that's yeah. been part of the consolidation of the printing industry. So in other words, what? So the same sort of idea? The big companies are buying the smaller companies or merging with... Merging. There's been a lot of merging, and there's been mm -hmm. some closing of businesses, but, but merging... And merging is, of course, bad for... Competition. Yes. Yeah, for exactly. you, the customer. Yes, yes. So that's an example, though. I don't yeah. want to make it too... No, no. It's no. an example of something that I would become involved in with our CFO, our chief financial officer, and our production director. So what would you do? You would go to one of these printing houses and say, listen, <laughs> quit shafting us, or, uh, you know, <laughs> no. you used to charge this amount, and then... No, no, no. But I think we grapple with these issues, and we look for solutions, and we look for strategies, and we discuss... Like what, what though? <laughs> well, when we can, we look to see if there are smaller vendors that we can lift up and give more business to. When we can, we look to strike um, agreements with printers for volume based on giving them a guarantee of a certain amount of printing. But these are minutiae in this, I think, the broader discussion. I like the, like the minutiae. <laughs> this is a podcast about books and publishing and okay. how, how they're made and yes. how they're written and right. how they're collected and uh, you name it. But, okay. Uh, so, okay. for example, uh, who's your favorite printer? Oh, I, I really can't Don't say know. that. Okay. No, I mean... Or not favorite, yeah. but... I mean, we work with a number of printers, but I don't think it would be fair of me sure, to sure, okay. to talk about them individually. I see, okay. You know, there yeah. are vendors. And they're, they're mostly in the, in the United States? Yes. Or, I yes. see, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on production? Um, I think we're, like everybody, we're looking to produce the best possible looking books and yet keep them within reason. I mean, there's a huge amount of pressure on price, as you probably know. Yeah. I mean... The price of the book. The price. So yes, you the sell price the book. Of the, yeah. Okay. Well, the, the list price of the book is all important. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, discounting, of course, undercuts independence. We're very, very interested in supporting independent booksellers in every possible way. Yeah. Not to say that, of course, we don't deal with the chains and the online real retailers. Of course we do, but we would like to support independent booksellers uh, to 
whatever extent we can. Yeah. Um, price point is problematic, and um, there's a lot of price resistance in the book industry. Uh, in other words, what if if it's more than twenty one ninety five? I'm not going to buy it. Or yes, these days probably more like if it's more than twenty five ninety five, I'm not going to buy it. Or, or if there are three, you know, memoirs that I've heard of recently that I really want to read, maybe you buy the one that has the lowest price point. I, I mean, retailers certainly believe that. They believe that it's a very big factor in buying not not so much the scholarly books, not so much the books that are unique in their field, but certainly memoir and fiction. We don't publish fiction, but mm. I know that there's a lot of price sensitivity in fiction mm. in both hardcover and paperback and um, and certain kinds of nonfiction where you know you might have a choice of three or four different books to buy on a particular subject yeah. and price will enter into the consumer's decision-making. Mm -hmm. So keeping the prices low is, it's amazing to me how little prices have changed in the past 25 years. Yeah. yeah Movie prices have gone crazy. Yeah, flight prices haven't been that bad. Depends. But, yeah, but I noticed you've got all sorts of different types of books here, so yes. do, you, do you mostly go out with paperback first, or do you go out with hardback first and then paperback, or it, it just depends on the title or what? It depends on the title, but I would say we're still publishing probably 75% of our books originally in hardcover. Okay. And then um, you, issuing them in paperback about a year later. That's okay. from the majority of our books. Some we do as paperback original, mm -hmm. and occasionally we do something special like a paper over boards book or some special treatment on a book. But the vast majority of our books follow that pattern, which is kind of traditional in book publishing. And it works for you? For the most part, because we do grab the library sales. We, we grab the people who have to have the book the minute it's out. They need it for whatever reason, personal or professional. And then we have another life in paperback. We're also, it's very important to Beacon to try to keep books in print and active as long as we possibly can. Okay. And we have a, an extensive backlist, and we try to keep as many of those books in print as we can for as long as we can. Yeah, I see you know, James Baldwin here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. That book has never been out of print. Yeah, um, yeah. Our classic Octavia Butler, one of the few novels that we have on the list, Kindred, has never been out of print mm -hmm. and sells quite well every year. And then we repackage books and redo them over the years. Um, our best-selling backlist book is Victor Frankl's Men's Search for Meaning. Uh, read that as a teenager, that so many did, I'm sure. Yes, well worth reading again, by the way. And mm. in fact, um, that book we have repackaged many times, mm. including recently we did a YA, a, a, a young adult edition of the book. Uh, okay. What about a graphic novel version? Well, we've spoken to the Frankel estate about that, but they're very resistant. And I don't blame them. I think no, it's no. very difficult. Do they don't that. want to trivialize it? Or? Right. Yes. It's less, it is a narrative. There is a narrative yeah. in the section about the camps. But 
it is also very, very much a philosophical, mm. psychological, yeah. intellectual book. <laughs> and, um, and to try to reduce it to graphics would be very challenging. I don't know that it's impossible, and I would welcome the chance to try. Well, I think of Mao's, you know, and yes, uh, of course, same topic, you know, thereabouts. Yes. What about graphic novels? Do you get uh, into that at all, or we have we have dipped toes yeah. into graphics. We won't find them up there, but we have dipped our toes into graphic books. Every once in a while, we seriously consider doing another, but. Um, but there are so many houses that are dedicated, drawn in quarterly, and so many other houses that are very good yeah. at graphic and know yeah. what they're doing and do it well that it doesn't really seem to be our bailiwick. Okay. Um, we talked uh, about production design and, and editorial design. How much input do you have on, on like, does it have to go through, you say yes or no to the cover? Well, not just me. It's I a mean, committee, we have a, is it? Yes, we have a group that meets every week and yeah. looks at um, designs or design memos. The editor is responsible for writing a memo to the design department about what do I want this cover to do? Sell Just, books, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, okay. often, um, we always, of course, want readers to be attracted to the book and to want to pick it up. Yeah. But we also want the book to signal the kind of reader who would be drawn to this book. We want it to signal what kind of perspective the author has in this book. We wanted to, memorably, one of my former design directors, who was a very talented woman, said, you know, a cover has to be a poster for the book, the same way a movie poster functions, which is to say, we cannot put everything that's in the book on the cover, that's never going to happen, but give us something that signals mm. what's in the book, what you might find here, and who should be reading it. So that's, that is the function of the design department. Um, we currently have two people, a creative director and a senior designer. They're both immensely talented, and they do a lot of design work, mostly covers, but sometimes interiors, mm -hmm. and sometimes they do some promotional materials for us. They design posters, actual posters, yeah, and, yeah, okay. et cetera. So how many books a year? We're doing somewhere between 35 and 40 okay. original books, right. but and then reprints, of course. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we redesign the cover for the reprint, mm -hmm. so you can get something that's radically different on the reprint because the audience might be quite different when you come to a paperback. Or you might just want to reflect a different strength of the book. So we sometimes redesign the cover. So that ends up being maybe more like 45 books, covers a year, that these two very talented individuals have to design, along with helping design promotional materials, etc. We do meet with them once a week, as I said, and um, we discuss directions, and then we look at you know, tentative designs or sketches for designs that they're producing, mm -hmm. and we comment on them. So, so a similar process for editorial, or very different. The yeah. editorial team also meets once a week. Um, it's a larger team, 
Um, we've just hired some new people. So I think we now have 10 people total who are part of the editorial department. So that's almost a third of the press. And every week we meet and we discuss books that we want to acquire first. Is there an acquisitions editor or does everyone have? Everyone on the editorial staff is either, we have an editorial director, co-director of editorial, mm. We have senior editors, we have um, associate, an associate editor, and then we have editorial assistants. But everyone, including the editorial assistants, can propose a book for publication. So at the point where we're ready to actually make the decision as a group that we want to acquire a book, then we invite marketing our marketing director and our publicity director to come into the meeting to comment on what they think the potential is of the book, because that will inform not whether we decide to offer on the book or not, but how much we decide to offer. Because we always want to be offering something that is reasonable for a, a mission-driven nonprofit press. So we're not going to be offering, as commercial presses do, hundreds of thousands of mm. dollars for And we're talking advances here. Advance, yeah. yes. Yeah, advance yeah. against royalties, of course. Yeah. So okay. So um, then we assign two people to respond from editorial, to respond directly to the editor who's proposing the book. And those editors have carefully read the proposal and sample materials and maybe watched some videos online or looked at the competing books or read up on it. Mm. And they give thoughtful replies and then everyone is invited to join the discussion hmm. and we come up with number one a decision do we really want to offer on this book and number two what would be the right offer to make does it vary yes it a varies. lot from from what to what um, from our most modest offer would be probably eight thousand dollar advance okay and you know we we can and do go much higher when we have a book that we know will do very well in the marketplace. Like that Victor Frankl book, that's just huge. Yes. That's huge, and it's still, it continues to be huge, I bet. Yes, yeah. it, it does. Yeah. And, and part of that is that we, we spend a lot of resources, and by that I mean not just money, but hmm. you know, human capital. I think we spend a lot of time talking about that book mm -hmm. and thinking about how we can make sure that people see it, know it, learn about yeah. it. And new generations yes. adopt and exactly. Read. Well that's yeah. that's why we did the young adult edition, for yeah. example. Yeah. And we got um, a very prominent writer for young adults to do an introduction to it. Mm. So we're trying to constantly make sure that people understand that this is a very important book that mm -hmm. has a lot to say to the 21st century. Yeah. We talked about the role of the press. We talked about your role. Anything else that you do that we haven't touched on? That's a good question. It feels like we do so many different things. Legal issues you acquire in, in public health and legal issues, right? Mm -hmm. And other issues. I mean... But you you also <laughs> deal with legal issues as it pertains to the oh, publishing yes, house. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, like what? Like libel or...? 
we haven't had much trouble with that. <laughs> it's mostly agreements and yeah. managing contracts. And, you know, right now, one of the things that I'm most excited about and invested in is audiobooks. Yeah, such a huge growth area. Really too, big, right? yeah. very big growth area and very important. And mm. to a press like ours, it's important in part because it makes books more accessible. Yeah. And we want books to be accessible. Yeah. Um, it's also why we started. We started doing ebooks in 1999. Mm. That's before there was a Kindle. Yeah. That was long before there was a Kindle. So mm-hmm. we were doing ebooks that we couldn't really sell because there was not really a platform to sell them on. But I wanted to explore this and to see if it could be effective in the disability community, especially because it allows you to enlarge the type and to do some things that will help people who are visually impaired. And um, and with the audio, of course, we have a whole another range of outreach and um, a new audience. But also, the audiobook is just another way of getting people to read, you know? Yeah. So I think that's hugely important, mm-hmm. and um, getting young people to read. So what's the process? Like, do you actually retain people to read the, the book, or you go to a company that does all this, and you, you just oversee that? Both. You do both. Right? We do both. Like, I guess you would suggest that the author themselves, in many cases, does, does the reading? Um, we do sometimes, mm. but not that often, because, frankly, most authors are not really prepared Hmm. and able to read their entire book Mm -hmm. in a way that is appealing to listeners. So for most of our authors, no. But for some exceptional authors, yes. Mm -hmm. And we have a studio in the building, Mm -hmm. and we do and have recorded, for example, the poets. Um, We do some poetry, and the poets would always read their books for audio, if at all possible. Um, That is part of what they do, after all. When we have memoir, we try to have the author read if the author is able to. Mm. And the author needs to audition both to understand what it's like to try to read your book aloud for an audience, and then just for someone who has an exceptional following. Mm. and really feels like it's important. So for those authors, yes, we, we arrange to have the audio book um, recorded and sometimes do it here if we can. For some others, we work with some independent narrators. We're very lucky, for example, to have Howard Zinn's son, Jeff Zinn, who's an actor and producer, and who does record some of our audiobooks and mm. is a wonderful narrator. And then we do use a number of professional studios that yeah. give us auditions. So we will ask for three or four auditions. If none of those suit us or the author, then we ask for more auditions, and we keep going until we have the perfect reader mm. for the book, because well, that's so important. And what criteria do you use for that, then? Well, it's. I would say... You know it when you hear it. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's just, I mean, I suppose if you hear the right one, it's you want to keep listening. That's probably part of it. Exactly. It yeah. has to be a voice that you think, I can listen to 10 hours of yeah, this, right. or sometimes more. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be a voice that doesn't mimic the author's voice, per se, mm. but certainly matches the kind of 
voice that the author imagines for the book. Okay. So it can be it can be complicated, but to me it's extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm. I'm really very proud to be in audio. Good. Yeah, I, I think it's a wonderful development. It's uh, the, the human voice, uh, uh, listening to the human voice and, and storytelling is, uh, is such an important part of our whole you know, existence as humans. Yes. You know? So what do you do to, to distribute this then? Is it all sold online or through your website or Amazon or what is it? Specifically the audio books or yeah, all of our the, the audio. Um, actually, Penguin Random House Publishing Services, which is our distributor to the trade for our print books, yeah. also distributes our audiobooks. So we produce the audiobooks and then we send the files to Penguin Random House Publishing Services and they distribute to anyone who retails audiobooks. But what are they? Is it like, is, what is it? Is it like a CD or? No, no, no it's although it's we. old technology, right? Right. They're digital files. They're digital files in various formats, depending on, on the vendor and what right. the vendor requests. It's the same with ebooks. Ebooks are just digital files that get yeah, transferred. Yeah, so it, it's online. You don't. It's not a. It's not like a box that you send off. It's like mm, it's online. That's true. Although we do also work with a vendor who produces physical CDs and um, even MP3s. So all of our books, all of our audio books are also available in physical CD and MP3 for the people who still want to listen that way or for the libraries that still want to represent those physical objects in their collection. Okay. Although libraries more and more are actually loaning out the digital files. Right. The whole area of concern around that too I mm. think uh, ebooks and audio and how that might impact us from libraries might impact the sales from publishers but we won't get into that good <laughs> um, just uh, just winding down then uh, the, the history of the of the firm of uh, beacon press uh, it was Emerson's cousin yes. Uh, he's also named Emerson, mm-hmm. and he was um, a Unitarian minister. Okay. And what we know about his founding of the press is that he thought it would be a really good idea to publish books. Mm-hmm. And, there, and in fact, there were books, as I said, first book was 1825, not 24, but 1825, okay. and it was called the American Unitarian Association. That was the, um, the year that the American Unitarian Association was formed and began publishing some tracts, probably is a better word for them. Um, we have some of them, but not so many. Mm-hmm. But in 1854, there was a fund established with the goal of raising $50,000, which was a considerable sum of money in 1854, and educator George Emerson, cousin of Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson, because Ralph Waldo Emerson was briefly a Unitarian minister himself, Mm -hmm. headed the fundraising issue. And there was actually a bookstore as well in the original days. But (laughs) those were the origins of what is today Beacon Press. Now, over the years, are there any particular series or 
particularly beautiful or collectible books that you you can bring our uh, collectors up to speed on? Well, interesting that if you can see behind that cactus in the corner of my office, ah, this yeah. was one of the few art books that Beacon ever did, and right. it's called Moments. It's and big, isn't it? It's big, yeah. and it was a collection of the art of Corita, who was actually a nun, and if you've passed the gas tank, the huge gas tank in Dorchester, if you go on the Southeast Expressway, you'll see that she actually, she didn't physically paint it, but mm. she did the design for the painting of that object that was sitting there being extremely ugly <laughs> until she painted it. Hmm. So, um, is there just one book, or is there a series? Or? No, there was just the one book. And, and what year was that? Oh, I would give me a minute. I'll go look. Okay. It was long, obviously long before my time. I'll take, I'll take a photograph of that. Too. Okay. It has an introduction by Norman Cousins. Oh yes. Okay. I'm going to take yours, too. Can I take yours? Yes, sure. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, okay. great. And you, you wanted to take a photo did, of that. I did, yeah. Oh, you did already. I know, I no. did want to. Yeah, maybe put it on a more neutral background. I think that would work better. Yeah, yeah, and one that doesn't reflect so much. Mm. Yeah, that's... Okay, uh, any other books that, from a collector's uh, standpoint, stand oh, out for you? I can show you the original edition, yes. Some important oh. books from our past. Oh, this was okay. The original incarnation of. Oh, this is Viktor Frankl yeah. from the, Death Camp to is, Existentialism. It's Man's Search for Meaning, but when it was first published, it was called from the Death Camp story. Oh system. yes, yeah. There's different. Uh, oh, here we are. Her, uh, Herbert uh, Marcuse, uh, One Dimensional Man. Yeah. That's a huge book from our backlist. Right. But again, I guess you could just sort of search through, uh, how many in total? Any idea of how many books you've published in total? It's, a, it's probably about a thousand, about a thousand different titles. Okay. And there's 800 books that are active. It's, it's somewhere in that area. Okay. And now finally, the book that, or books that you, of course you're excited about all of them, but <laughs> if there's one or two books that you're particularly excited about uh, that, that uh, may be coming up. A recently rediscovered book by Viktor Frankl. Ah. Yes, it was a book that he wrote 11 months after Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. It's called Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything. And um, it's a brilliant little book that really encapsulates his philosophy and his psychology. Survivor. He's a survivor. He's a survivor, but yeah. he, he really does talk in depth about what it means to live and how you find meaning in life. Mm. And so it distills and refines and crystallizes the lessons from Man's Search for Meaning. And um, we're very proud. We, we um, bought it at, in a heated, we don't participate in auctions, but it no. was, there were heated offers for the um, US rights to it. 
and um, and they picked us not because we made the biggest offer, but because we made the best offer. And part of that was that we will be promoting it with Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. et cetera. You'll be uh, coming out with a new edition of it then? Yeah. We'll, kind of companion yes. edition? And, um, and also, I just met with Daniel Goleman, the famous author of Emotional Intelligence, and he's writing the new introduction for the book. Oh, which wow. I think will introduce it to a whole generation of people who know of Goldman's work, but mm. who don't necessarily know Frankel. Mm. So I'm very excited about that connection and making that connection as well. And then there are just so many terrific books that we have a book just about to come out, or just that just did come out, called mm. Breathe by Imani Perry, which is in so many ways, the sister to Ta-Nehisi Coates's book because it's a letter to her sons, but it's, um, it's from a mother. And I think the, the lessons that she outlines so brilliantly are really important, not just to black mothers of black boys, but to mothers of all ilks. So, mm. so also equally excited about that book. And so many others, I would just say, you know, we're very, very proud of what we do, and we curate our list very carefully. And Well, it's clear that what you do uh, uh, provides a, a great deal of meaning to your life. And mm. uh, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about the Beacon Press uh, with us today. Well, thank you. And I'm delighted to be able to talk about the press anytime, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with uh, Helen Atwan, who is the director of the Beacon Press in her office in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks very much. Thank you.